0: What can the Arthurian legends tell us about the medieval societies that loved them? I'm Lucy, and this week on Footnoting History, I'll be looking at what made giant dinner parties a good political strategy for medieval rulers, and why a popular 14th century romance features an undead knight who makes an appointment with his mortal foe in a chapel. For much of the Middle Ages, King Arthur was Europe's model ruler, the once and future king. Could it be said that he had a model court? In the Arthurian romances so popular in the High Middle Ages, Arthur's court could be a space for heroism and for romance, but also for the uncanny and otherworldly. In the Arthurian legends, we see, on the one hand, a carefully ordered society, a king who is generous to his court and ready to hear the complaints of his subjects. So far, so ideal. The society of the round table puts down anarchy, preventing and avenging exploitation, rape, and murder, and puts evil magic sorceresses and enchanters, though no one named Tim, uh, out of the kingdom. Doing so, however, is anything but a linear progression. Again and again, portents and challenges interrupt the order of this society, very often reminding Arthur and his knights, and the readers, that all is not as it seems. As we see in the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, this held true for questions of when to break rules and when to obey them, and even, or perhaps especially, when it comes to distinguishing between good and evil. I'm going to be using Arthurian legends as a collective term for two main bodies of source material, the so-called Matter of Britain, prose and verse narratives from the 9th through 12th centuries, roughly, and French romances from the 13th and 14th centuries. There were a few long-form German romances involving Arthur, including the most influential version of Tristan and Isolde's story, but Arthurian tales were, to judge by what survived, most popular in what is now Britain and France, possibly because these regions had relatively strong centralized government, which could patronize the stories or be critiqued by their content. Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur, on which most modern treatments principally draw, was something like a glorious synthesis of the British and French traditions. You might think of Arthurian literature as medieval Europe's fan fiction, created around characters with an unfixed canon. You can imagine listeners and readers having conversations about Team Arthur versus Team Lancelot, or whether to ship Palamides or Mark or Tristan with Isolde. Most narratives take the form of interlinked episodes centered on the court of King Arthur or the travels and adventures of its members. Before I go into these stories in more detail, though, I want to talk about the very earliest references to Arthur and the antecedents of the high medieval romances. The context of the early tales helps to explain, in part, why King Arthur gets elements of so many mythic traditions. Was there a historical Arthur? Probably not, at least not in the sense of having a single prototype for King Arthur, as he is most frequently portrayed. Maybe King Arthur was the original Dread Pirate Roberts. But not really. Anyway, we have two early medieval sources for material that came to be used in the Arthurian legends. Gildas, a British author of the 6th century, wrote a book called Of the Ruin and Conquest of Britain, which is about as cheerful as it sounds. He chronicles the unsuccessful and abortive battles of the Britons with the Romans, the coming of Christianity to the British Isles, and the invasion of the Saxons, who are eventually repelled at the Battle of Mount Baden. No mention of Arthur, but wait for it. An anonymous chronicle written around 900 says that in this battle, Arthur carried the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ for three days and three nights on his shoulders, and the Britons were the victors. Most impressive. Nennius, a Welsh monk of the late 8th century, wrote a history of the Britons in which the British leader at Mount Baden is also identified as Arthur. Nennius tells us that Arthur was a great leader who fought 12 battles, a nice mythic number, and also that he had a dog. Uh, Nennius did have access to 5th century sources, which he could have used to get contemporary evidence, but he also has a lot of dragons in his story, so we must take it with several grains of salt. Subsequent centuries were studded with other notable Arthurian texts, the Mabinogion and Laemon's Brut, for instance, and these versions continued to remake Arthur and his society in the image of those who were telling and listening to the stories. That what is written is only a fraction of the oral tradition is suggested by the 12th century monk William of Malmesbury, who crossly observed that the ordinary people of Britain wove all sorts of fables and legends about King Arthur, instead of leaving the subject matter to serious and educated historians like himself. Obviously. Geoffrey of Monmouth, writing at roughly the same time, gives pride of place to King Arthur's adventures in his own History of the Kings of Britain, written in Latin as well. Merlin, the prophet and sorcerer, is still present as the builder of Stonehenge. There are dragons, too, and Arthur is still represented primarily as a leader of military campaigns. Gregory's Arthur, though, also obeys the rules of 12th century society. Nobles and clergy are involved in his election and anointing, and Arthur takes counsel from both groups regularly. As the genre of romance developed in the 13th and especially the 14th centuries, Arthur's court would come more and more to resemble the courts where these stories were read and written, read, and heard. If you, as an ordinary individual, in, say, 1313, were to ask yourself, I wonder what the king is doing tonight? What merriment is he pursuing tonight? The answer would probably be listening to someone tell a story. Whether or not podcasters are the successors to medieval poets in this respect is, as yet, an unexplored field of research. Geoffrey of Monmouth, dragons notwithstanding, told stories of King Arthur in the framework of a history, where Geoffrey also records, for instance, the coming of missionaries to 6th century England at the behest of the Pope. In romances, the adventures of Arthur's knights become increasingly fantastical, but Arthur himself becomes more and more steady and responsible, not to say boring. While political borders in the 13th and 14th centuries were not always stable, Systems of government were increasingly so, bureaucracies enabling continuity and security of administration under a central ruler. Bureaucracy, thank goodness, does not come into the Arthurian legends. But Thomas Mallory, especially, satirizes the idea of kings getting too caught up in ideals of individual heroism. When Arthur tries it, he tends to get embarrassingly beat up. Merlin has to save him from bleeding to death on one occasion, and on another, Sir Bedivere and Sir Kay have to actually pry him loose from the grip of a giant. So what does Arthur do instead? He presides over the round table. If this ideally peaceful image were intended as a hint, it doesn't seem to have worked. Edward III, the English king who was such a big fan of Arthur that he created the Order of the Garter to be just like the Round Table, also spent a lot of time embroiled in the Hundred Years' War. But Arthur is no longer the military leader recorded in histories from the times of warlords and familial factions. He is a king who sits in judgment a king who is wise in law. He sometimes gets imported into other stories to give especially wise decisions, as in a 12th century version of Tristan and Isolde, for which he finds a happy ending. Most of the times we see King Arthur in these romances, he's sitting at a feast. To modern audiences, this may not seem like much work. But in the Middle Ages, feasts, especially when held at religious festivals, were occasions for administration. Especially at Christmas, it was a time not only for friends and allies to gather, but for the collecting of rents, another thing too boring to be included in romances, and potentially for the making or reaffirming of agreements, of political friendship. And I use this term which may sound oxymoronic to us, because medieval societies didn't always separate political from personal loyalty, at least in their rhetoric. The language of affection uh, was very much the same, even if what you were really doing was making a treaty. It was seen very often as an emotional relationship, not just one involving hard cash or boundary lines. Christmas, too, to return to the feast, was a traditional time for distributing favours to friends, new sets of clothes to servants, and of course lots of food for absolutely everyone, with special attention to the poor and vulnerable. Moreover, the courts of medieval Europe did Christmas parties right, Christmastide lasting twelve days. It was during this time of celebration that Arthur pulled the sword from the stone, and during this time also that the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight takes place. The Green Knight is one of the most outlandish apparitions of Arthurian literature, sized like a giant, entirely clad in green, and anything but jolly. He challenges any knight present at the Christmas feast of Arthur to an exchange of blows. The knight chooses a spot, hits the Green Knight, and then the Green Knight gets to hit him back on the same spot, if he can. This offer is met with an awkward silence. The man is, after all, a giant. Then Arthur speaks up. No one else, he says, should have to take such a risk. He is the king. The buck stops there. Everyone acknowledges this as a really awesome thing to say, and the Green Knight agrees. But Gawain, the king's nephew, jumps in to point out that this could go really badly. What happens if Arthur is maimed or killed? So Gawain takes over and beheads the Green Knight. And then everyone took a drink while it was mopped up? No. Then the Green Knight picked up his head and said that he'd give Gawain a year before hitting back. Everyone is horrified, understandably. Next Christmas, duly, Gawain meets his fate over Arthur's protests. Now, I'm going to break the narrative suspense of Gawain and the Green Knight, which is awesome, so I apologize, in order to talk about what it does. We discover the Green Knight, who has so far appeared as, one, super creepy, and two, probably not quite of this world, as testified by his unnatural size and fairyland green attire, appears next Christmas as a courteous, civilized, noble host. Gawain asks for shelter at a castle, and Bertilak, the Green Knight's name, essentially tells him that he has to stay for at least a week because it is Christmas and that's what the baby Jesus would want. Bertilac serves awesome food, has a charming wife, goes hunting like any good nobleman, and lets his guests sleep in, not the least of his civilized qualities, in my opinion. There is also a lot of sexy flirtation that goes on between the Lady of the Castle and Sir Gawain, which is so ambiguous and multi-layered that it's launched scholarly studies all its own. So I'm not going into it in detail here. Suffice it to say that they kiss, and then Gawain kisses Bertilac, as a way of indicating what has gone on. But he doesn't show his host the allegedly magical girdle which the lady gives him for protection. Very useful when you're expecting to be beheaded by a giant. When Gawain and the Green Knight finally meet, in a chapel, the Green Knight lets his ass whistle past poor Gawain twice and just nicks him the third time as punishment for the fact that he didn't give him the girdle. Then they go home and feast some more. This is also the point where I imagine generations of English majors have asked themselves what the heck is going on. Well, to start with, this is an unusually complex example of how Arthurian literature mixes and mingles religious traditions, sometimes matter-of-factly, sometimes as here with virtuosic literary technique. The figure of Gawain himself, it has been argued, is based on a Celtic sun god, as his power, in multiple legends, not just this one, is always greatest at noon, and this, his most famous and dangerous adventure, takes place at the dark of the year. As we've seen, authors like Geoffrey of Monmouth had no problem with putting Merlin and his magic into their stories alongside priests and bishops. This did not cause cognitive dissonance in audiences, contrary to what we might expect. Due to the 19th century, which was very freaked out by industrialization and secularization, oh, so scary, the Middle Ages acquired a reputation, as durable as it is undeserved, for being a more or less monolithic age of faith. This was so far from being the case, however, that some scholars have asked if, despite all the missionaries sent out in the early 6th and 7th centuries to distant areas of Europe like the British Isles, medieval Europe was ever quote-unquote Christianized, in the sense of being fully adapted to the orthodox, small o, Catholic, small c, Christian faith. The popes, monks, and nuns responsible for those early medieval missions were very conscious of the potential classes between pagan cultures and the Christian religion, and in many instances worked eagerly to accommodate different views on heroism, for instance, or on taboo. This process of mutual adaptation was long and complex and difficult to reconstruct, as many of the records of conflict are in saints' lives, many of the records on accommodation only in letters. As far as we can tell, medieval societies tended to see the supernatural and the otherworldly as always imminent, always potentially present. Direct records of visions or experiences of this other world are comparatively rare, although we may be vouched safe information about, for example, a peasant who said he saw and heard the devil in the form of a tree, although it did not please the man to speak to him, or a farmer's daughter who saw angels, and would later become known as Joan of Arc. So Arthur, the model king of medieval Europe's courts, celebrates a model orthodox Christmas. But he also rules a realm where the otherworldly can be almost anything. If Arthur was medieval Europe's most Christian king, his court was certainly its most pagan one. Knights with elements of ancient deities about them, Gawain or silver-handed Bedivere, go on a search for the Holy Grail, the cup of the Last Supper. King Arthur ends by being taken to the Isles of the Blessed, Many authors ended their Arthurian romances with prayers to Christ for grace and salvation. I will close, gentle listeners, by wishing you warmth on long winter nights, whether or not you spend them reading Arthurian romances. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!